Well, again, blessings to you. I'm glad you're a part of this. I want to encourage you to do a couple things. If you've got your scripture journals, get those out. Um, if not, open up to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, for those that are joining us for the first time, whether you're in Colorado or Arkansas, or we know we've got somebody from New York joining us today, I'm just so glad that you're part of this. We are committed to preaching Jesus every single Sunday in 2020. And to help us do that, we're taking a long journey through the Gospel of Luke. And so perhaps you're part of a church that may not be able to meet either, and they may not have the capacity for a live stream. I want to invite you to come along and join us and be a part of this journey as we examine who Jesus is week after week through the Gospel of Luke. And we've been on this since the beginning of January, and now we're going to be in Luke chapter 9. And before we get there, I want to talk about two words that I think matter to us and have taken on a brand new meaning uh, during this season that we're in. And the two words are this, interruption and disruption. Now, can you imagine two words that more accurately describe what we're experiencing right now than interruption and disruption? If you think about all the things in life that have been interrupted, uh, all, all the ways that things have just come to a screeching hot. The, the normal pattern of things, your normal routines, all of those are up in the air. Uh, shopping is being uh, interrupted and disrupted. Uh, I've got a senior son, Caden. Uh, so many things of his senior year, those typical markers that we think about when it comes to graduation, um, prom and graduation ceremonies and finishing out those memories uh, with your classmates, that's all done. Uh, that's all changing has been interrupted and we don't even know what some of the plans are going to be. And so it's also a disruption. And as our lives are no longer in a simple, uh, predictable pattern and it's been disrupted. And this isn't the only disruptive event you've ever experienced. Now, this is the one that I can't think of another where it's been this collective and we've all experienced at the same time. But the loss of a loved one, uh, the, the dis announcement of a disease, the end of a marriage, uh, the, the loss of a job, a financial uh, downswing, all, all of these things can interrupt and disrupt and it throws us out of our norm and it makes us so uncomfortable doesn't it it makes us struggle and wonder where is God in the middle of this and what's what's going on and how in the world am I ever going to recover well I want to start with those two words because in that part of where we are in Luke that's exactly what the disciples are experiencing now if you remember we looked at Luke 8 and then Luke, part of Luke, Luke 9 last week. And in, those, in that story that we shared last week, we saw Jesus do some incredible, amazing things. We saw him in a boat, in a storm, speak to the wind and the rain and calm it down. And then immediately after that, he arrived at a seashore. And when they stepped off of the boat, there was a man possessed by a legion of demons to greet them. And he didn't greet them with a high. He came screaming and shrieking at them. And with a word, Jesus commanded the demons to leave him. And then we saw how he healed a disease and then even overcame death and then shared a meal with 5,000 people, beginning with just some loaves and some fish. And so you have to understand from the disciples' view, the disciples, the ones that were following Jesus the closest, the 12, maybe you've heard of them referred to that way. 
They are following him. And each time they see one of these events, their idea of he is the Messiah, he's the one that we've been waiting for, he's the one that's going to make it right, continues to grow. And their enthusiasm and their excitement, and they had in many ways given up a lot to follow him, but they were pretty sure there's going to be a big payoff in the end. And that's what they're experiencing. And so as this momentum, as it looks like they've made the right choice, as it looks like he's got all the power, he changes the game on them. And he shares something with them that interrupts and disrupts their world. And it's a game changer and it shakes them to their very core. And I want to show that to you what he does. In Luke chapter, uh, chapter 9, I'm going to put this up on the up on the screen here. Luke chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse... Um, I may be off on that verse there. Um, is that verse 21? Yeah, 21. It says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And then 22 says, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now you have to understand, you have to understand how this is. They, they think that they are on the road to success. And then at this moment, he says, the Son of Man, that's how he refers to himself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes, and then he lays the big one on them, and be killed. Now, again, put yourself in their shoes. Suddenly, they're hit with this news that this is not going the direction that they think it's going. This is not going to end the way they think it's going to end. And their lives are now disrupted. Because imagine if you're following Jesus at this moment and you've seen nothing but examples of power, and then it quickly becomes... But this is going to end in my death. And what he's explained to them is this, is that you have the right title for me. I'm the Messiah, but you don't understand my job description. You don't understand what I've come to do and how I'm going to do it. And he begins to explain to them the ways he's going to suffer. And he's talking about his coming death and his crucifixion. And they don't even have a category for that yet, because this is not how the story is supposed to turn out. Interruption and disruption. Well, they're thrown back on their heels. Their lives are changed, much like ours have been. It's not going the way they thought it. This is not going to be comfortable. This is not going to be easy. And so what do they do? Here's what Jesus does. And I want to show you uh, in this next passage an experience that's incredible for them. And it's an experience that you may know as the transfiguration. But it has to have, take place in the context of understanding where they are emotionally and where they are just mentally right now in this interruption in their life. And so let's jump to that passage. The transfiguration begins in verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings. OK, so Luke is letting us know. Luke's the author. And he's letting us know that eight days later. He's going to share this moment with them. So they're still in the middle of that, in that moment of trying to figure out what this looks like and what does this mean. He took with him Peter and John and James. So he takes three of the disciples and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered 
and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now let me pause right there. So they go up on the top of a mountain, top of a hillside, and Jesus begins to pray and he would do this all the time. In the middle of this prayer, it, it says that he changed his appearance. Now, the other gospels, when they tell the story, they talk about it. He's being transfigured. They use that word. Luke doesn't necessarily use that word, but it's an idea that his appearance changed, almost like there was a metamorphosis that came on. And it begins to, to be a dazzling bright white. And it's one way to think about this is almost as if he was shedding his earth skin just for a little bit, his earth suit just for a time being. And they got a glimpse as to who he really is in all of his glory. And at that moment, he's joined by two other people that just appear on the mountainside with him. And it's Moses and Elijah. Now, we're told that they recognize who these guys are. How they recognize, I, I don't know. But this would have been an incredible moment and meaningful for them. Moses was considered the great giver of the law. The one that all their religion, all their law had been based on. The revelation of God up to that, up to that point. Moses is the one that brought that. And Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. So it says all of these, the law and the prophets, hang together in Jesus. In that moment, it's being represented by the presence of Moses, who, who died some 1,400 years ago. And Elijah, who died some 900 years ago. But there they are, alive and with Jesus. And in that moment, they're encouraging him and they're talking to him. And so Peter and James and John, they would have put the pieces together and said, okay, this is now showing us who Jesus is. He's come to fulfill the law. and He's come to be the greatest of the prophets. And this moment would have been just startling to them because they're seeing two of their heroes coming and giving validation to who Jesus is. Now remember, they've been in this moment of trying to figure out what's all this going to look like. In this moment, they're seeing who he is. And then I want you to look at this. They came, they appeared in glory and spoke of, so this is Elijah and this is Moses. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Luke uses a very interesting word there when he says the word departure. And it's the Greek word for exodus. In fact, that's where we get the word. Now, if that word sounds familiar to you, that's because it's the second book of our Bible. And Luke uses that word on purpose. He's talking about the exodus that Jesus is going to be completing his mission and going somewhere. But Luke, as the author, Peter, James, John, all of them, anybody that read this in the first century, they would have picked up on that word and they would have immediately had images of the exodus that had occurred generations before. And that is where God came to his people and used Moses, used Moses to speak to Pharaoh when God's people were in captivity in Egypt. And if you've heard the song, let my people go. And God uses the Exodus event as the way of salvation, the means to rescue his people. And he takes them out of slavery and delivers them into the promised land that they're now standing at this moment. And so for Jesus, Luke is describing Jesus as his exodus. 
Okay. And the way the Exodus unfolded was that Moses came and he gave the word of God and said that if you want to be delivered from this, what you do is you sacrifice a lamb and then you take the, the blood of the lamb and you spread it on the doorpost of your house. And in the night, the, the last and the greatest plague that occurred, God sent his angel and that passed over any house that had the blood, but took the firstborn of any house that lacked the blood. And so now they're describing Jesus' departure as his exodus, his saving moment where he's going to become the lamb, become the deliverer, become the one that fulfills all the hopes. And by his blood, anybody that comes under that blood will experience the salvation, will experience the rescue that God is promising. So that's a clear word, this idea of departure. Moses and Elijah are there encouraging him about his mission. And he's being reminded and encouraged by he's going to accomplish this salvation act for all the world, for any that's going to come under the protection of the blood. And that's what they're seeing. That's what the disciples are seeing at this moment. Back to the story. Next, next slide. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Seems like anytime Jesus goes out and has an intense moment, the disciples are always sleeping. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter says to Jesus, and Peter kind of loses his mind at this moment. He sort of jumps up in, in exclamation. He says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. What he wants to do is he wants to sort of capture that moment and never leave the mountaintop. Maybe you've had one of those mountaintop experiences. One of those ones that, that you don't want to, to ever end. And remember, Peter has been one of the ones that's just received the news that this is not going to go the way they think it's going to go. It's not going to go all comfortable. It's not going to all be easy. There's going to be a challenge. There's going to be um, difficulty and there's going to be death and grief involved. And so can you imagine if you were in that state and then you saw this going on, you would want to hang on to that moment as long as possible yourself. And so he says, let's build some tents. Let's just stay here. Let's remain in this because what's outside of this, what's off of this mountaintop seems very scary. And so he does that. And I love what Luke says. Peter says, let's let's make some tents. And Luke says, not knowing what he said. He's just he's just speaking from emotion at this part. And then it ends this way. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone and they kept silent and they told no one in those days anything of what they'd seen. These guys are almost asleep. They're, they're tired, they're exhausted. And then they kind of fully wake up in this moment. They see Elijah, they see Moses. They realize there's the significance of this. They have a desire just to stay here in this moment. But then a cloud comes around them and God speaks to them and they hear that this is my son. He's the chosen one. They're seeing who Jesus is being fully revealed to them. They're fully woken up in that moment. And they're encouraged by it. 
So here's a takeaway for us. Takeaway is this, that as we experience this scary moment, as we worry about everything from shopping lines to the availability of toilet paper, to the availability of medical care, to a virus that seems to be moving rapidly through the country and around the world, and, and all those unknowns that go with it, and all that, that, that tension, that anxiety that goes with it. I can't think of a better thing than for us to set our eyes on who Jesus is. Because that was the diagnosis, that was the prescription exactly in that moment when they realized their world's been disrupted and interrupted. Jesus takes the three away and says, I'm going to reveal to you who I am. And that's the exact hope we have today. That seeing who Jesus is clearly, realizing that he's the source and always has been and always will, will be, is the one place where we can find hope. Because doesn't it seem like the news shifts daily? Doesn't it seem like there's always some other take on this? There's always some other perspective on it. There's always some more bad news. The curve seems to keep going upward. So in the light of all the things that are shifting, what Luke would have us say, focus on right now is seeing who Jesus is. Seeing who he is and what he's done and then being reminded of what he's going to do. Because in his mission, at the end, he did have the departure. He did have the exodus. He did go to the cross, gave up his life willingly and freely and took on the disease of sin for you and me. Laid down his life, spent three days in a tomb and then walked out alive and not just Jesus alive, but Jesus as Lord, Lord and Savior. And that's the Exodus story for us now because he accomplished that. Not that, that I have to go accomplish it or that you have to go accomplish it, but he accomplished it. And so seeing Jesus clearly for who he is is the best prescription Luke's going to tell us in these times when we're trying to figure out which way's up, but keeping our focus on him. And so I, I want to encourage us with a few things. And I'm going to ask a couple of questions as we go in to a time of our communion. We, in our church, we share in the Lord's Supper every week. And this is a supper that took place right before his crucifixion, where he gathered those closest to him together. And he gave them a practice, a habit to engage in. And this was to remind them that he's always present. And we talk about the juice and the bread as his blood and as his, as his body. And then we share that together as a reminder of his exodus, what he's done for us. And so we're going to partake in that time. So if you've got the necessary items there in your house, I encourage you to have those ready. In a few moments, I'm going to invite one of our shepherds up, Tim Weddle. But before we get to that moment, I'm going to share a couple of questions for you to think about. And this might be something that you share together. Uh, this may be something that you want to write into your journal or onto the piece of paper that you're taking notes on, but as a way to remember this and drive this home. Here's question number one. Where have you seen Jesus at work in your life? See, the disciples were given such a great opportunity to see him 
and who he was and see clearly. And the way that we get through that is to be reminded of how's he been at work in your life? Has he been at work in this season, what we're experiencing right now? Or perhaps in a previous season, maybe even years or decades ago, but where you saw him at work and there's something that you're grateful for and that you know it was real and was tangible. To be reminded that it's going to bring him back into clear focus once again. And that's going to bring hope. It's going to bring encouragement. Well, here's the second one. Then I hope you'll participate in this one. What are you grateful for right now? See, being grateful is a way of being reminded of what he's done for you. And so as you think about what you're grateful for, I'm going to encourage you to make a list in your journal. If you're willing, I'd love for you to jump on right now into one of the comments and just share what you're grateful for. Just put one or two, three things, whatever it is, into that comment stream and encourage somebody else with what you're grateful for. Because when you're grateful, your fear decreases. Because right now, it's so easy to be focused on all the bad news, all that is scary. But when we're reminded of what we have to be grateful for, and this is a pretty unique time when we really do have what I would call a forced Sabbath, where we're asked to slow down and be reminded of what we have. And we're really able to describe the difference between what we need and just things that we want. So what are you grateful for? And let that list, and I would encourage you to just keep a list and maybe add to it two, three things every day as we go through this, that there's something that you're grateful for. And that will rise to the top what Jesus is doing. That will rise to the, your awareness of what God is about. And that will lower these anxieties because God has this. This did not surprise God. This did not catch him off guard. It interrupted and disrupted our life. But in many ways, there's a possibility that God can use this to draw us closer. And so that's what we're going to celebrate in supper now. So I hope you have the elements ready. I'm going to invite Tim to come up as we think about what are you grateful for in this moment. And remember, the point of the, this meal is that Jesus is present. He is the chosen one. And God encourages us to listen to him. Tim, if you would, please.